Hey everyone, welcome back to the Light and Lion podcast. And man, I just gotta say that that was smooth. That was a smooth entrance right there. <laughs> I, I've tried that like 10 times. Um, and that, that was by far the smoothest we've done so far. So I think it's gonna be a good episode. Yeah, that was that's gonna be an inside thing. The listener will never understand, but that's okay. We are really excited. We are trying out today a little bit of a different approach. As you guys know, Light and Lion, we're a very young podcast trying out some different approaches to these episodes. And so today we're excited to get into a series, I guess you could say, of of a topic that is very, very important uh, to this show and for Christians in general. And we're going to be talking about theology. Now, when I say that word, some of our listeners may be cringing a little bit. They're thinking, okay, next, you know, I'm getting out of here. I don't want to talk about this, this nerdy theology stuff. But that exact thought process is why we're going to be talking about the topic of theology today. And I know that we have in the past, we've, we've done everything from back and forth conversations. We've done reaction videos, but today we actually have a visual aid and we are going to actually throw up on the screen right now. Um, I'm going to rely on you Dakota to do this cause I'm not yeah. sure how to, Oh, there we go. Okay. So yeah, so we have a nice little slide deck here. And Dakota, do you have anything that you want to share before we get into this topic? Yeah, it's, I was going back through some of our, our older episodes. Cause I was like, I feel like we've, we've kind of scratched the surface of this discussion of theology before. And I, and I was looking at the Ligonier survey that we had uh, reviewed or, or recapped in one of our earlier episodes. And, and we kind of touched on theology and some of the I guess, uh, common misconceptions of theology or what it looks like, or people's um, beliefs about certain aspects of theology. And I think that this is kind of going to be a little bit of a part three. I think that ended up being a two-part episode, but I think it's going to be part three of that episode. Because I do remember when we left it, I, th I felt like we had barely scratched the surface of that conversation. There was still so much more that I, I felt like needed to be said. And so I'm excited that we're kind of rounding back to this and that we're kind of diving into something that is very often overlooked and and... You know, I think that we had discussed the the title of this episode being something along the lines of theology, not just for the scholar, um, something along those lines. So I, I, my hope and prayer is that as we kind of dive into this and as we discuss theology as a whole, um, that the the listener will be able to see that theology is, in fact, for more than just the scholar or the seminarian. Yeah, if we had to give a, a thesis statement for this episode, the thesis statement is this, is that theology is for everybody. And hopefully over this episode and the next few episodes, we're going to be able to prove that out a little bit more. So let's go ahead and let's start with the most foundational question, because I'm not going to assume that every single person who is listening knows what we mean when we say the word theology. They hear the ology and they're like, well, that sounds like a scientific term and you'd be correct to say that. <laughs> so Theology, if I had to give a very, very basic 10,000-foot overview definition of what theology is, theology, simply put, is the study of God. We have two really parts of the word here, right? We have theos, meaning God in the Greek, and logos, which you may rec recognize if you've ever done any study of John's gospel. You know, in the beginning was the word, the word there used is logos, so that means word. So literally, it's a word about God, but we're going to just say the study of God, the ology there, if you think of things like biology or psychology, 
typically we're using that in reference to the study of a particular field. And in this instance, the, the, the field of study is God. And Ronnie Kurtz has a really helpful book, and it's somewhere back here on this bookshelf, but it's called Fruitful Theology. The first sentence in that book is very helpful for our conversation today. He says that theology is the study of God, which we've already covered that. But more importantly, it's the study of, it's the study of not just of God, but all things in relation to God. So we're not just studying, uh, and God's not an abstract concept to begin with, but we're not studying something that's abstract or hypothetical. We are studying the eternal triune God, and we're studying how all things in the observable world around us, including our own lives, how do we relate to God? And and Ronnie, he goes on to say, when we go about the business of Christian theology, it is God that we are after. God is the primary subject of Christian theology, and we put him before all, placing all else in its rightful place sub subjected to him. So the first thing that I want to say before we get into some of the categories of theology is that we have to realize that that we have to have a, a, a theological theology um, or a theocentric theology would be a, a more precise way of saying that. What I mean by that is we have to have a God-focused theology. I think in our culture today, it's very easy to have a anthrop, um, anthropocentric, meaning a man-centered theology. And, and that sort of, uh, I, I guess you could say in that sort of thinking or that sort of uh, starting place, if you're starting with man and not with God, you're going to impose your own thoughts and beliefs onto God as to where Scripture is clear that our minds should be renewed by the Scriptures. God has been gracious to us to give us His Word, and therefore everything we think about God and creation and His plan and sin and judgment and salvation should be informed by that ultimate source, which if you've listened to us before, we've talked about sola scriptura, I am almost confident we've used that on here before. Scripture alone, right? That is the the base of our theology. Now, before I get into categories, Dakota, any any thoughts there? I mean, when when you say the word theology, you hear people, or you kind of, if you're talking with them in person, you may see their face kind of cringe up a little bit. Um, what, what what's your experience with theology, whether it be for yourself or maybe people you've talked to? Yeah, I think most people they just feel like feel like theology is for as we touched on for the title of the episode is for the scholar or the seminarian. I feel like most people don't feel like theology is something that they need to partake in, and I think that's probably because we don't properly understand really the definition of theology in and of itself. I think it's easy to think about you know textbooks and professors and sitting in a classroom and learning about all of the the super 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 deep you know, maybe non salvific uh, discussions about things like soteriology and Christology and um, ecclesiology and, you know, eschatology, all these, all these things that most people, while they have a opinion or they have a viewpoint on all of these things, maybe they don't even know what those things in and of themselves actually mean. And so I think it's really easy to get caught up in the weeds of all of these ologies and all of these really academic sort of terms without realizing that every single day we're all engaging in theology to a certain degree. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to, to kind of dive into these different types and, and allow people to really understand that this is something that we're all actively partaking in without really even knowing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that we're going to touch on that even more so whenever we get to 
uh, the section on who should study theology or why we should study theology. So we'll save a little bit of that um, as we progress. But okay, so moving on here, let's talk about the categories of theology because when we say theology, we don't just mean that it's a general field of study. Just like anything else, any any other field of scientific study, you're going to have, I guess, what you could call subdisciplines, perhaps, or categories of that field of study. So when we're talking about theology, we have five main categories, and I'm sure maybe there's nuances where you could further divide these out even. But for the sake of our conversation, we're going to keep this super high level and super simple. So the five categories we have here, we have biblical, exegetical, systematic, and I'll explain in a second why there's a red bracket around those three. Then we also have historical and then practical or what some would call applied theology. So what do these mean? Well, first off, biblical theology, in the sense, the way that we should think about it is the Bible is not 66 stories. And the reason I say 66, because obviously that's the number of books in the Bible, the the scriptures are not 66 unique stories but rather it is one whole story and you may hear the the phrase or the term meta narrative when we talk about the meta narrative of scripture we're talking about how scripture progresses from genesis to revelation and one thing that should be said on biblical theology is that it is a story that is told progressively and that doesn't necessarily mean that things uh replace come in and replace the old things but rather it's i'm trying to think of how to say this it it builds upon itself right so the story of redemption is a progressive story It, it is constantly building upon itself and yes some things change in view of progressive revelation but we have to view scripture as one story if we're going to understand it so biblical theology in effect is studying how redemptive history has progressed from Genesis to Revelation. And I remember in seminary, uh, when I first started, I took a class on basically the, it was an introduction to theological studies. And one thing my professor said that really stuck with me was he said, when you're thinking about biblical theology, that, that whole field of study is based on the assumption that God has, in fact, progressively revealed himself. <laughs> Um, both through, you know, through creation, he's generally made himself known, but through the scriptures and particularly, he has revealed what he is like, who he is and what his plan for, uh, salvation for his people is ultimately. And so if we, if we want to think in terms of, uh, and John MacArthur provides this really great construction analogy, if we want to think in terms of construction, biblical theology would be the sort of the the framework if we're building something on a foundation biblical theology would be the framework of that foundation so the second and if we want to pull that slide back up dakota we have exegetical theology now exegetical theology this is a term that we've used on the show before maybe you recognize exegesis so exegetical theology is going to concern itself with um, looking at a specific passage and in effect asking what does this mean and some some good rules of thumb here is we we want to know three main things. What does this text teach me about God? What does it teach me about myself? And what does it teach me about the world around me? Right. So that would be exegetical theology. And if we go back to our construction analogy, exegetical theology provides the the concrete foundation or 
Uh, another way of thinking about it, you might say, is exegetical theology provides us the actual content that we are going to use in both our biblical and our systematic theology, which we're going to talk about next. So systematic theology, and it's a th third of three main core uh, disciplines here. Systematic answers the question of what does the entirety of the Bible say about, and then you can fill in the blank. Now, obviously, it's not going to it has to be things pertinent, but uh, you're, you're not going to be able to find a systematic theology book that talks about changing your oil or, you know, something like that. But if you want to know what does what does the Bible say about God's will or what does the Bible say about Christ? These would all be systematic theology subheadings or, or I guess sort of subdisciplines within systematic theology. And one thing I want to say here on systematic theology is that the name can be deceiving. Systematic theology is not a system that gets imposed onto the scriptures. In other words, it's not a framework that we're using to read the Bible, but rather what we're doing is we're taking all the content from our biblical and exegetical theology, and we're organizing it in a way that's easy and accessible. So again, if we want to know all of what the Bible says about the end times, well, from Genesis to Revelation, we're going to scour all that data, and we're going to put it in a systematic theology textbook. And then you can, in one place, if you have a particular area that you're interested in learning about, you can go read in a textbook all of the biblical data on that sp particular topic. Um, here, I want to take a pause and see, Dakota, is there anything that you think that I skipped here or anything that is unclear? No, I think that's, that's super helpful. I think it's important to, to understand that kind of how these, these different studies of theology and the different ways to to kind of come uh, across or, or come after theology in and of itself is that there is, these things can build on each other, that it's not mutually exclusive, that there's not one that is um, more favorable or, or better than the other, or one that you have to do this instead of this. I think we're seeing that as you're kind of giving that construction analogy, that these things are all sort of building on top of each other and that there is a time and a place to sort of study in that specific way. Um, you know, whereas systematic theology, the thing I like about that in terms of getting a good grasp of sort of these different topics that might be a bit more nuanced or maybe a bit confusing to a lot of people, I think it does a good job of of kind of categorizing each of these things. And uh, what's that adage about like how to eat an elephant one bite at a time? I think systematic theology does a really good job of taking like one bite at a time and allowing you to really understand each of these categories and these concepts in and of themselves to kind of show that whole like cohesive picture. Yeah. And that brings us back to the construction analogy. Systematic theology is the actual structure that gets built on top of the foundation and the framework. So the main point to, as we move forward, because we still have two categories to talk about, but I just want to make clear and Dakota, you just did a really good job at touching on this is that these different disciplines and categories of theology, they're not competing. You don't have to say, oh, well, I, I really enjoy systematic theology, and, and so I only study that, and I don't study biblical or exegetical or any of the others. No, these things all work together, and you, you have to really engage in study of all of them, particularly these first three, if you want to have a sound theological understanding of God and all things in relation to God. You can't just choose one at the neglect of the other. Now, I will say, caveat here. There may be topics within these broad categories that you find yourself particularly drawn to, but my encouragement to you would be don't 
study that one category that you find interesting at the expense of these other categories. Cause you'll actually find, for example, if you're studying Christology, which is a, a category under systematic theology, you are only going to find your understanding of the doctrine of Christ, which is what Christology is or the study of Christ. You're only going to find that enhanced if you are spending time exegeting the text and also studying the progressive redemptive story, right? You understand you understand where Christ fits into that, how he was promised, how he actually came and conquered, and how he is coming again. If you only study a Christology in a systematic textbook, you're going to miss out on the richness and fullness of understanding. So I want to say that as before we move on. Um, so here we have two final categories, and I don't. I don't neglect these two. In other words, I don't put them outside of the red brackets because they're unimportant. But like we just finished talking about, those three in particular, the biblical, exegetical, and systematic theology, they are very, very much interconnected. And the same can not really be said for the historical or the uh, applied or practical theology. Not, not that they're totally unrelated, but they're not as interconnected as those first three. So historical theology as the name you might be able to guess from it, it tracks the development historically of Christian thought, uh, particularly around doctrine and beliefs and those sorts of things. And I'll say that historical theology is probably the most neglected of these five. And I don't know if there's a sole reason for that. I don't know a lot of people who are passionate about history to begin with, so maybe that's a reason. But I do think that there's a great benefit for taking the time to study historical theology, mainly because it gives us a sort of feeling of continuity with the past. We can look back and see, well, what have the saints of old believed about this particular topic? And also it kind of can serve, it's not an infallible source, but it can give us sort of guardrails and bumpers to see, okay, are we staying within orthodoxy here as we're studying the scriptures? You know, if I'm studying something and I come to a certain conclusion and I happen to ask the question, well, what do all the church fathers have to say about this? Or what did the reformers say about this? And I'm just totally out of bounds. What are the odds that all the church fathers and the reformers are incorrect versus me being the one that's incorrect, right? So I think historical theology does have some value. Uh, you don't have to be a history buff to enjoy it. But like I said, it can show you if you if your beliefs and the conclusions that you're coming to when you study God's word are in continuity with all of the saints for the last 2000 years that have come before us. Well, it's important so too that, that mm -hmm. touching on the, on the historical theology um, it's important, I think to, to make sure that we're putting, and we talked about this before, but putting in the proper context and proper place, the tradition as well as biblical um, inerrancy and infallibility and sola scriptura, right? So we want to make sure that not that we're taking man's tradition over the last 2000 years, and we're now gravitating towards that because there are certain religions and sects of religions that, that put a higher emphasis on tradition uh, and kind of man's theology rather than feel like we're about to see a baby. <laughs> Landry has a lot of thoughts on historical theology. Um, yeah. But I feel like it's it's there are certain traditions that will put more of an emphasis on these man-made theologies or man-emphasized traditions and theologies. Um, I'm not going to mention any any specific denominations or or belief systems, but we want to make sure that we are 
going to scripture first and foremost. And then we want to see how the the early church, how they interpreted interpreted the scripture to make sure, Chris, like you said, that we're in line with what people have believed for the last 2000 years, but obviously making sure that we're keeping the Bible itself as our foundation, sola scriptura, um, going off of that as our foundation for everything else, um, while using yep. everything else as kind of a complementary addition to to a, a better understanding of, of kind of what we're what we're reading. Right. And also, I will say, I apologize for any baby uh, cooing that you, the listener may hear. Uh, my wife just left to go meet with her mentor. So Landry is going to be joining us for the rest of the episode. <laughs> and I so I hope that's okay. Um, so yeah, I apologize for any baby noises that you may hear. But yeah, um, so I agree with you, Dakota. And like I said, the main thing I want to tack on, if, if you don't remember anything else, listener from historical theology is that it's not infallible. So when, we, when we're reading Augustine or we're reading the Church Fathers or we're reading Calvin, we have to remember that these are fallible men. They are not without sin, um, and historical theology can be abused. And so I want to say that that when you're, when you're engaging in, you know, if you sit down and you read Augustine's City of God, which I think all Christians should do, it may take you five years to do it, but I think all Christians should do it. I got it sitting right here. It's a big, thick book right there. Um, it'll take you a long time, but you have to remember that Gustin is a man. He's not Jesus. He's not God. He's not a prophet, but there's a lot of help from reading those sorts of old, um, those old writings. And also just to make sure, like I said, that we're in continuity with, uh, the, the saints of old. So the, the fifth and final category here is we have practical slash you can call this applied theology i actually like applied the applied theology a little bit more but you can call it either or if you if you say one or the other you're talking about the same thing and ultimately what practical theology asks is how do we take what we've learned from god's special revelation in the word and how do we number one do ministry in light of that we all engage in ministry that doesn't mean you're a pastor it just means that you're a christian if you're engaged in ministry, or if you're a Christian, you, you are engaged in ministry. Now, you might not be engaging yourself as much as you should be in ministry, but nonetheless, you're engaging in ministry as a Christian. And the, the number two thing that practical theology asks is, how do we live a life that honors and pleases the Lord? And so, uh, as the name implies, practical theology, of course, is going to be what most Christians, I think, will actually be drawn to, because they'll want to skip through the first four categories and say, well, what does all this mean for me, right? That's what they want to get to. And, and even a lot of times in, in this show, what we are engaging in is practical theology. We're trying to summarize what scripture says and how we should respond. And so if you want to think of practical theology in that way as a response to what you've learned, that's great. But I want to be clear that, uh, that sorry, <laughs> that uh, practical theology is its own discipline. And there are several categories that fall, like apologetics, for example, falls under the category of applied or practical theology. Okay, so why study theology? Let's dive into this. I know we're already about 25 minutes, so I'll try to be kind of quick with this. Uh, I know we have two more points still. So let me go ahead and pull pull this up here. Um, okay, so first first reason is we, we, we need to know why we believe what we believe. Uh, why do we believe that we're going to spend eternity in heaven? Why do we believe that our sins have been forgiven? Why do we believe... Uh, that we are to live a certain way. All of these things are are crucial and are critical. Um, you know, things like the resurrection, things like crucifixion, Jesus claims to deity. If somebody comes up to you and they say, 
they say that Jesus never claimed to be God. I hear that a lot from some other religions. We need to understand how we can respond to that in a way that is truthful, that is gracious and kind, but that we are giving them truth. And we need to show them where in the Bible we can see direct claims to Jesus' deity made by Jesus himself. Things like before Abraham was, I am. Um, understanding that there were many that claimed to be the Messiah that were not crucified. What was it about Jesus that got him crucified, that got him nailed to a cross? It wasn't just his claims to be the Messiah. It was his claims to be God that got him crucified. We need to understand that he made that claim and understand how we can refute when somebody comes against that. Um, there was a LifeWay survey that said that just under half of Americans, so 45%, say that there are many ways to heaven. We need to be able to refute that claim that there are many ways to heaven. John 14, 6 is the best way that I can think to do that. It says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we're not doing a careful, consistent study of the Bible, study of the word, then when these objections that should be re reasonably easy to push back on, if we're not doing careful study of the word, we won't be able to respond to these things. It'll lead to doubt in our own lives. And it'll also cause the person that we're talking to to not be edified and not be encouraged and given truth in that moment. So and that's the first thing. Second thing here is we need to be able to defend our faith with truth. And I kind of just touched on this. And a lot of these are kind of going to bleed into one another. But we need to be able to have a reason for the hope that is in us. In 1 Peter 3.15, and this is going to be very scripture heavy, so I do apologize. But it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. Um, I actually don't apologize. This is uh, this is a biblically based podcast, so we're going to go into scripture, and I'm not sorry for that. Uh, Sam Harris, a, a philosopher, uh, atheist, whatever you want to, other labels you want to put on him. He a couple quotes here that I think are important that really emphasize why it's so crucial that we are able to defend our faith with truth. He said, "The idea that any one of our religions represents the infallible word of God." Um, Word of the one true God requires an encyclopedic ignorance of history, mythology, and and art even to be entertained for a moment. He's basically saying that it's foolish to even believe that there is one true God and that we have his scripture. He also says the Bible is a 2,000-year-old book of badly edited folklore. It has no more place in the 21st century than the Iliad. So when people make these kind of claims, and as they so often do and will continue to do, we need to make sure that we're able to defend our faith with the truth of God's word. Um, let's keep plugging along here. Uh, we need to be able to grow in knowledge of and intimacy with Christ. This is uh, very similar to our kind of tagline as we end our show, grow, growing in knowledge to the glory of God. We need to make sure that as we're studying these things, as we're diving into the word, as we're growing in knowledge, that we're doing it to God's glory. But we're also doing it knowing that through these studies, through time in prayer, uh, through time with, you know, even with the saints being encouraged and uplifted and edified, that we are able to grow in intimacy with Christ. When we make time with him a priority in our lives, we'll find that our intimacy with him and our desire uh, and heart for him will continue to grow. Um, as I kind of keep going on here, Chris, any thoughts, questions, comments for anything that we've kind of touched on so far on, on this section? No, I mean, one thing that I would say, and perhaps this should have been the first bullet point is why not? You know what I mean? Why not study theology? Because Here's how I think of it. If there is a God, which there is, and he has made us in his image, which he has, and he's given us the 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 faculties of knowing about him and fellowshipping with him, 
And one of the ways that we do that is by serious study and contemplation of his word. Why would we not want to do that? You know, I, I am flabbergasted when I hear from Christians, well, that theology stuff just isn't for me. But theology is how you know God more, more richly and more deeply, and, and you understand his will um, not just for the world, but for your life and how he wants you to live and, and how you should worship him and all these sorts of things. So I think the the best question to say is why, why wouldn't you want to study theology? And I think we live in a culture that's very much opposed to deep contemplation really about anything, but especially when you start talking about the, the divine and the supernatural, people are kind of scared to engage in that because it, uh, it seems anti-intellectual, but I would argue and say that the study of God and all things in relation to God is it is both the most intellectually satisfying pursuit that you can have, but also it is the most soul-satisfying pursuit. And of course, we only find our, our joy and our satisfaction in God, not the mere study of God, but in having relation to him. That's that's a key thing. But yeah, I, I would just say for the listener, why would you not want to study theology? Yep. Yeah. And, and to tack on to that as well, it's, I found for myself that the discipline of getting into the word daily or, or spending more time in prayer, which are both, you know, two things that I'm, I'm desiring to grow in and, and do more and more. Um, and I'm, I'm constantly asking God to give me that continued desire to do so. I find that like a muscle, it's the more that you do it, the more it starts to grow, right? The more that you feed something, the more that it continues to grow. So I say that if you don't have a desire right now to get into the word daily, and we've said this before, but you have to almost start doing it just as a habit or, or pattern or routine. Even if your heart is not in it in the moment and you're just doing it, you're tired, you know, it's early in the morning. <laughs> I'm trying to stay focused right now. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry, dude. No, it's, it's <laughs> all good. It's all good. Going, I'm trying to keep her entertained so she doesn't, uh, our, she keeps uh, looking at me with those eyes that's like, hey, I'm about to, I'm about to, oh. Hey, you it's know, it's, we're, we're walking on thin ice over here. So our, I'm just our, trying to keep her entertained. Our cutest podcast ever. So it's okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say even if we're just starting off by, by doing it as just for the sake of, of trying to get into the habit and that routine and that pattern, I think that is glorifying to God. I don't think that our emotions have to be in it from the jump to, to kind of kickstart that. I think there is something that is very glorifying about doing it for the sake of, of honoring God through the practice of getting into his word. So uh, we'll continue on here. Uh, we need to be able to learn what God's word says about how we should live. Uh, Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the only way that we can really truly understand how we are to live without being influenced and, you know, kind of led astray by the culture, by the shifting tides and waves of, of the world that we live in, because morality is constantly shifting. If you ask the world, the only way that we can stay grounded in truth and rooted in how we truly are to live in a way that glorifies our creator is by getting into the word and seeing what his word has to say about how we can live in a way that honors him. Um, next is we need to be able to spot incorrect teachings and interpretations. This is crucial for all time, it's been crucial. I'd say even so, uh, even more so now, I think there's just such a a pushback against that we want to keep an element of Jesus, right? You'll find that 
and we talked about this in, in, in our separate Bible study this morning, but every religion has a, every major religion at least, has an element of Jesus in it because it wants to give it validity. So you'll find that so much of this sort of progressive Christian movement, they'll use Jesus and they'll use these biblical terms to give their movement or their cause some legs and kind of give it some validity. But you'll find quickly that what they're saying does not line up at all with what scripture says. But if we're not careful to be in scripture consistently, we might be confused and led astray by that. Um, so when you're talking about incorrect teachings and interpretations, an example of that could be like in the Mormon faith or the LDS faith, they use words like the atonement, but what that word means in the LDS faith is so different than what the Bible teaches about the atonement. The atonement as a Christian, as a Bible believing Christian is that our sins have been atoned for on the cross, paid in full, is by grace that we have been saved, not by our works so that no one may boast, and that our deeds are filthy rags. So we know that we are, when when we are welcomed into heaven, it's not going to be because of any merit of our own or nothing that we have done. It's solely because of Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. Yet for the LDS or for the, for the Mormon, they would say that the atonement means that Jesus died on the cross so that we could then go do good works to reach a certain level of heaven. Those are two very, very, very different beliefs. But if you don't understand what the Bible says about the atonement, you might be led astray by that. And I could talk about that for hours. So we'll just keep moving on here. Um, Chris, if I if I say, um, or if you have any thoughts on anything that I'm saying, feel free to just jump in and, and cut me off, but I'm gonna keep going. Um, the next is to become equipped and prepared to face the daily challenges of life. I would say this goes into the, and I'll go back here to this last slide, the practical and applied aspect of theology. I think that understanding how to, uh, you know, when we're faced with difficulties or we're faced with trials, we're faced with a situation at work, at home, whatever it might be, to be able to know how we are to react to that and to be kind of on the offensive instead of always playing defense, I think is is crucial. Ephesians 6, 11 through 13 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand firm. So we want to make sure that we are prepared to go into battle every single day that we step outside our door. We are engaging in, in a battle, whether we want to admit it or not. So because we are engaging in that battle, it will serve us best to be prepared to go into that battle. Um, which is why I feel like it's it's beneficial to study the word and do some prayer in the morning before you uh, before you leave your house. Um, let's keep it moving here. So last couple here. So this one is eternal implications. And I mean, it kind of speaks for itself, Chris, or like you said, why would you not? I mean, the the implications for where we will spend the rest of our lives comes down to what we believe about what the Bible says. And so if we want to kind of put theology in the study of scripture and the study of God's word, if we want to put it in its most basic high level form, uh, then everyone understands that all Christians need to be theologians. We all need to understand and study the Bible um, and have a, have a proper understanding of, of what the Bible says, especially emphasizing these matters that are salvific. Um, a couple of verses here, Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will be able to store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. 
relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The world that we live in will tell us to store up as much as we possibly can, to have as much as we can secured away for um, you know, for the unforeseen events of life, and then to store up even more than that to get the things that we want and that we can find joy and fulfillment in our status, in our position, in our bank account. Yet we see here that in God's word is clearly speaking out against that. Not that there's anything wrong with being prepared for the, you know, the, the trials of life and making sure that we have savings. I'm not saying that, but but the world will tell you to store up but the world doesn't think about the reality of death and that death is coming to every single man for every man that has ever been born. That man has died. Right. So like with the exception of obviously our generation now and those living. So it's, it's a pretty impressive ratio one-to-one. -one. So if we are spending all of our time consumed by the things of this world, the second that we die, all those things are brought to nothing. Um, and they're, they're turned to ash and dust. Whereas the things that we've done for the kingdom of God, those are the only things that will last. So if we're not staying fixed and focused on God's word, well, it'll be really easy for us to kind of get derailed and, and go off the tracks there. Um, and I don't want us to look back on the end, at the end of our lives and be filled with regret for the way that we spent it. Um, and so that's, that's our hope here. And then the last thing is God has spoken. So God has spoken to us through his word. And there's been, I've heard some tongue in cheek, uh, sort of quotes. I think Justin Peters had the one about um, if you want to hear God speak, uh, read your Bible out loud. Um, you know, so I, I think it's just so important that for the person that is maybe constant in prayer and they're praying and they're asking God about something, they're saying, Lord, please speak to me, please, you know, give me an answer here. But they feel like they're, they're not hearing from God. Like one surefire guaranteed foolproof way to hear from God is by opening his word and by reading what his word says, because every single word that is in that in the Bible is is from God. Uh, a couple of verses here, and then we'll we'll move on to our last section. But Hebrews one one through two says, "Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also He created the world." Second uh, Timothy three sixteen says, "All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness." Second uh, Peter 1, 20 through 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I have two more verses because this is a super important point. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then Jeremiah 1, 9, then the Lord put out his hand to touch my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I put my words in your mouth. So it's clear that that every single aspect of scripture is breathed out by God, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. We have to believe that we have to hold fast to that. And because we hold fast to sola scriptura, we have to study the very word that we are basing our, our entire lives upon, the words in that. So um, I felt like I, that was rapid speed. I'm like out of breath now going through that. But let's jump into this last section here, the question of of who should study theology? Hopefully that was clearly answered in this episode. The answer is everybody. We all have an obligation to study the word of God, the very word of God that we are basing our eternity upon. Um, I know there's going to be some days for 
you know, for a lot of us or for all of us really where that's going to be more enjoyable than others to, to get into the word and really do deep study. But I think it's going to be advantageous for all of us to really take the time daily to, to get into the word of God as best as we can to spend time studying it, to spend time in prayer, something that Chris and I have recently started doing in our other Bible studies. We've started praying the Psalms. So if we're unsure of, of what to pray about that morning, or if maybe we feel like our prayers are getting a bit dry, um, because we're repeating the same exact things over and over again. Something that I've found that that can really just kind of ground myself is by opening the word of God, maybe opening up a Psalm and just praying through that Psalm because I want to pray in a way that glorifies God and not just edifies or, or I'm sorry, not just, it just exalts myself. So I want to be edified and encouraged and ultimately want God to be glorified. And that's really our desire for studying theology is that God would be glorified in, in our study. We don't just study it for the sake of, of just studying it, we study it for, for the sake of of growing in knowledge that God would be glorified, and I think that's probably a good way to uh, to end it, Chris. Unless you have any final thoughts um, before we uh, before we we take off. Um. Yeah. No. I I think you nailed it there. Um. Also, too, praying through the Bible is something we should definitely have another episode about. And um, but yeah, I mean, if you have a pulse you should study theology because the reality is, is whether or not we want to admit it, which in our natural state, we don't want to admit this. It takes a working of God um, to admit this, but there is a God. He has created all things. We learn about this in Genesis one, one that God created all things. And as a result of that, God being the creator, all things are subjected to him. And so if we want to know our purpose in life or how we should respond to this God that has made all things, we should engage in serious theological study. Now, that does not mean that you have to go out and buy Herman Bovink's reform dogmatics and tear through that or no, it just means that you need to spend time seriously contemplating the things of God. And I guarantee if you give yourself over to the study of theology, your life will be uh, much better for it. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode today. Um, hope y'all got a lot from it. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to share it with family and friends. That really helps this podcast grow. Leave a review as well. Um, additionally, like and subscribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it might be. Follow us on Instagram at Light and Lion Podcast. And in the meantime, keep growing in knowledge to the glory of God. We'll see y'all next time.